2: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam
3: Kempenar. And I'm Josh Larson.
4: This is a war. But it's a war that cannot be won by the virtues of our unassailable military might and power alone. This war will be won primarily with the unassailable might and power. Ideals.
3: So let me get this straight. We agreed to review a movie where Brad Pitt talks like that the whole time. That is Pitt as General Glenn McMahon in War Machine, which premiered on Netflix last weekend. Pitt's accent's maybe not the movie's biggest problem, though. We've got a review, plus our top five movie military leaders. Stand at attention, soldier. That and more. This
2: is Film Spotting.
3: Yes, ahead on Film
1: Spotting. Josh, you've actually agreed to do the whole show in your Brad Pitt as General Glenn McMahon voice. I think it's going to be a real treat for our audience. Would that be a problem? It would be. It would be a problem, actually. We are going to share our top five a bit later in the show, movie military leaders. This is modified slightly from what we mentioned last week when we just had it as military performances. That became screen soldiers. And then we thought, you know what, let's just go to screen officers. And after debating what an officer truly meant and whether or not some of our picks would qualify due to their rankings, we decided we would simply call it military leaders. That's where we're at. Which means we spent more time on the title than our picks this week. (laughs) Absolutely. The Cannes Film Festival closed last weekend. We will share a few thoughts on the winners and some other notable films. Wonder Woman, of course, also out this weekend. Pretty good buzz so far, including a very positive review I saw
3: from Michael
1: Phillips in the Chicago Tribune. We will get to Wonder Woman next
3: week on the show. First, though, War Machine is the type of military satire seemingly designed to ignite outrage or at least controversy. So why has it been greeted with little more than shrugged shoulders? This has been running eight years now. Given your reputation
2: and your formidable drive, our hope is that you're the man who will get the job done.
4: Most of us here will know General McMahon, the man who kicked Al Qaeda in the sack. You're welcome.
0: Get your troops in order. Move the needle a little bit. Show everyone a nice
4: looking set of graphs. Just finish this thing.
2: It's a lost cause.
4: We can stay in Afghanistan forever. That's why I'm going to win it. My team and I are about to embark on a new direction. What is this new direction? We build Afghanistan into a free and prosperous nation. All right, smile for the cameras, Glenn. Sounds a lot like the old direction.
1: There's a fun, rather profound scene in War Machine where Brad Pitt's General Glenn McMahon, standing in for Stanley McChrystal, forces an audience with Hamid Karzai. He's about to launch his first big offensive in Afghanistan and is seeking official consent from the Afghan president, played by Ben Kingsley. This is your war, for your country, your people. You need to behave like a leader. Sorry to disappoint everyone. I'm not going to do the voice. Karzai grants his approval, concluding, genuinely, I thank you for inviting me to participate in the theater of it all. Theater is the perfect word for the act playing out between the two leaders since, as Karzai himself notes, both men are aware the approval was never really his to give. The Karzai on display in writer-director David Michaud's satire is pretty comfortable with his status as puppet for the American government. It's also the perfect word for the act playing out between the two performers. Pitt with his one squinty eye, gruff voice, lips stuck almost in a perpetual purse. Kingsley not chewing the scenery so much as lightly gnawing on it, almost childlike in his goofball glee. Of course, the entire war in Afghanistan is arguably one big absurdist drama, albeit one with real blood. All of the actors, generals, soldiers, politicians, keenly aware of the folly of counterinsurgency, the insanity of trying to convince a foreign country that you're there to help by invading them. Yet each one resign to play his or her part. At the center of it all, the tragic hero, aware of the insanity, aware of the absurdity, but absolutely sure that he... And he alone can alter the course of history. Josh, what dynamic did you most appreciate watching War Machine? The one between characters, especially when being honest about their own shortcomings? Between actors hamming it up? Between the filmmaker and us, the audience getting schooled on, among other things, the costs of nation-building and American might once again not making right? Or do you wish you had rebuffed Michaud's invitation to participate in the theater of it all?
3: You know, I think there are a lot of good performances going on in the film, but they're not necessarily at the forefront. I came around on Kingsley. I think his first scene as Karzai is way over the top, Hmm. and I was really worried. But the one scene that you highlighted there is probably one of the best scenes in the film, and he does dial it back. And it's one of the rare instances where this film does start— to inch toward Doctor Strange Love territory, right. even though Pitt's performance is almost at that level the whole way through, the other performances that I did really like, Meg Tilly, who when I first saw her as mm-hmm. the General's wife, as McMahon's wife, I you thought, actually said that out loud, Meg "Is that Meg Tilly? Tilly?" And yes, indeed, it was. And she's it's it's not only that the years have passed, but also that I at least don't think of Meg Tilly in these quiet domestic parts Hmm. and she's really good in it. She has maybe three scenes where she has an active part and I think she's she's quite good at giving us a peek of the humanity behind this main character. Also really good I would say or at least it was refreshing to see him again. Tover Grace, I feel like it's been a while. I know he's been working but an actor that I really like and this is sort of that snitty type of sniveling character as a army PR guy or someone a PR guy hired by the army at least. Uh, I thought he brought a good spark to the screen in his scenes and maybe the best performance. Okay, the best performance we won't give away is the three-second cameo at the end. That I was agree. a great joke. It's actually the best scene in the movie. Yeah, the best scene, the best joke. I thought that was perfect. <laughs> but the best performance I think is Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, really? As McMahon's right-hand guy, this jarhead, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. a, a muscle head. He is, he's there to fight. He was born to fight. That's what a soldier does. He has no patience for any of the politicians or the diplomats, and he is saying exactly what McMahon is thinking a lot of times, but McMahon has risen because he does recognize you got to play with the diplomats, right? Yeah. So that's a good Anthony point. Michael he's Hall like is like the, angry oh, he's devil on his shoulder. Yeah. And, and he is loud and very funny, even though he's being a little threatening and dangerous, too, in these scenes. And it works to go that big Mm -hmm. because he's a supporting player. And here is my issue with Brad Pitt's lead role. I've defended him before in his comic performances, whether it's something like Inglorious Bastards or my favorite one I would say is in Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers film. I really enjoy him when he goes broad and he goes big and he goes full of ticks. But those also are all supporting Performances. And this, you could say, is maybe his broadest yet in terms of the comic vein. And he gets the most screen time doing it. So yeah. it wears very thin, at least for me. Yeah, I just kind of want to say, I told you so. Like I've been saying this for years,
1: unfortunately, about. But there's Brad a Tick. distinction. I there mean, is. this no.
3: is when you get this this often, it's very different than when he shows up for, you know, six or seven scenes in Burn After Reading. I
1: agree, I suppose. With your general thesis, though, anytime Pitt goes broad, I have some issues with it, even in something like Inglourious Bastards, a film I really love. We joked about how I approved reviewing a movie with that voice. It's not even so much the voice. How did I let a movie with Brad Pitt making a silly face on the poster get approved? ...to be reviewed on this show, because honestly, that might be my number one movie rule. If Brad Pitt is playing a character, whether it's the voice, it's the face, the hair, the posture, whatever, just run as fast as you can away from it. And unfortunately, he did not disappoint in being disappointing, which isn't to say he doesn't offer a few dignified, almost touching moments at various points in this movie. But more often than not, Josh... I couldn't really distinguish his emotional face from his let's go win a war face or his I'm having dinner later with my wife face. They're all kind of the same. And I made the joke about his squinty eye. I suppose that's when he's being consistent. There are whole sequences in this film where he seems to lose the eye thing completely. There are others where it's not just a tight squint, but it seems like he's actually closing it completely while the other one's open. I was afraid at
3: points it wasn't going to open again.
1: I mean that's what you would think watching this film. He has a big scene with Griffin Dunn and it might have been Alan Ruck, one of the other diplomats oh, or I a forgot. politician. Alan yeah, Ruck Alan is Ruck, another
3: really good great supporting. Honestly he might in this be movie. the
1: best other than Meg Tilly in this film. He's really phenomenal. He gets some great things to say. But It's Pitt's character really kind of losing it on them. He's up, he's animated, he's making his case for what he wants done, and he's shouting at them. And I'm positive that that look that Michaud cuts to, where the two of them are just staring at him blankly, bewildered, isn't directed at McMahon, but it's the two actors just responding to Pitt. What are you doing? What are you going for here? That said, the one element of his Glenn McMahon I did kind of appreciate was that awkward jog the physicality he brought to the jog, which we learned about his character that he jogs seven miles every morning. We see him often doing that. It's just part of his routine. His, his nose is out there almost like a dog. His chest is puffed out, and he doesn't use his arms at all, which I right. love because it sort of sums up the <laughs> wonderful contradiction that this character is, where if he was really smart, he'd know that using your arms helps you run. At the same time, it's almost as if as a character he thinks to himself this is wasted energy. I don't need to use my arms. And so I'm not going to expend that energy. I just need my legs. And that's enough. One of those conundrums, and I think there are many of them with this character that maybe we'll get to.
3: The jog is great. I mean, it, it really, it made me laugh just about every time they go to it. It's, you know, little shots here yeah. and there. So it was just enough. It, it reminded me of the the old guy weightlifter on Seinfeld. I don't even remember that character, but something about how Pitt holds himself here. He's, he's stiff, even mm-hmm. though, you know, he's doing this this motion that should be exercised. He's almost like a, a wind-up toy soldier that someone just turned on, and then yeah. he goes and runs, right? I, You know, I think you're putting too much of the blame on Pitt here, really. I think the guy's a comedian. I think fellow actors recognize that. They want to be seen, in scenes with him where he gets to be funny. Um, and, you know, it's not going to work for all people, but I think he has skills in that area. I don't think this movie, I think this movie is unfair to him. Yeah, I'm not pitting it all on Mr. Pitt here, Josh. The problem is that it's also asking him to take a Another turn later in the film, and even sometimes earlier, where we want to take this guy seriously. So it sets the character up as a clown and spends at least the first third presenting him as, I mean, really, if you imagine General Buck Turgenson from Dr. Strangelove, given the George C. Scott character, given his own movie, where he's the lead, that's kind of what this would be. Yeah. Except that then later on, maybe in the final third, it asks him to do Scott and Patton a little bit, right, to bring some of that pathos. And suddenly we're meant to care for this guy as a character and to think about what does this failure in Afghanistan mean for him personally? Well, it's, you know, unfortunately, Pitt has invested too much time, or at least the filmmakers have given too much screen time right. to the cartoonish elements. And that shift is just unfair to expect him to make. And I think it's also emblematic of what's a larger problem with War Machine. It's that this movie doesn't quite seem to know what it wants to be, mm-hmm. whether it is this broad satire in a Dr. Strangelove territory, if it's something that works more in the lines of realism, like Three Kings, which I think is a is a pretty good film, or even something like Jarhead, which you could say, though it's much more personal in terms of a military person's experience, um, has some satirical elements, too. So it kind of jumps back and forth among these tones right. and never gives anyone a chance to really have their feet grounded. Maybe that's why the supporting players register more strongly because their scenes are clearly designed to do one thing. And so Alan Ruck is there for this weariness. He's the diplomat to Afghanistan. And he can represent this world weariness that these guys feel until he is there to mm-hmm. bring the domestic things to light. Yeah. Anthony Michael Hall can be broad. Pitt is asked to be in all of these scenes which have varying different tones.
1: Yeah. And tone is really the tough thing to gauge here. And I'm ultimately with you. At the same time, I'm trying to give Misho and company a little bit of credit. It's something I'm wrestling with a little bit because this happens a lot with movies that take on this type of tone where they're kind of a black comedy, but they're also clearly satirical. They're trying to make a point. They want to impart some lesson. And we can talk about how this movie probably goes too far in trying to impart those lessons. But You're dead on with Pitt in the sense that he plays McMahon as a man of integrity, I think, a man of some intelligence, who seems to have the right motives, if not the right moves. At the same time, he's equally a clown that sometimes you just want to dismiss completely. You're often wondering, is he... A good leader? Is he even a good leader? Or is he just completely misguided and it's a miracle he got to this place where everyone gave him this much command and authority in the first place? It's frustrating when the movie presents him as both those things. At the same time, that's probably fairly accurate. I don't know if it's accurate to Stanley McChrystal or other men like him, but I guarantee you that there are generals who have that type of presence, who command that type of authority and respect, and yet at the same time, are just as clownish in other aspects of their life as he is. So the movie's presenting that. It may or may not be true in some sense. It's not satisfying. I can tell you that. And I'll even give you another example that occurs with Anthony Michael Hall, where his big offensive is launching. It's not going well. I think it's already at the point where it's not going well. Or Actually, maybe he's just a little nervous about it. It's about to start. And he gets a pep talk from his closest confidant who calls him buddy by the way most of the movie Mm -hmm. and he does this whole thing where he just keeps telling him how he's the best and he repeats all these things people have said about him and the names they call him you're a killing machine
0: glenn you are the terrorist hunter remember you're big glenn you're the glennimal
4: thank you general
1: You're the Glenimal, he calls him. And it ends with him saying thank you to Anthony Michael Hall. And they kind of embrace like these gruff men would do. And the scene ends. And I'm caught watching it and dwelling on it thinking, is that a scene that I'm supposed to laugh at? Because it's totally ridiculous that they talk to each other like that. These grown men, these military men. Or is it supposed to be kind of touching? It actually is kind of both. So there's a high wire act being walked here.
3: Michaud doesn't always make it across the wire. Well, there can be and there should be a consistency even to a conflicted character. And that means that there can be someone who is at once in over his head, yet supremely competent mm-hmm. in one area. And I think that's the problem here. There is there's no consistency in this character, even though we recognize it's a conflicted guy. And there are also odd choices like the fact that that the movie gives maybe 15 minutes to a fighting battle scene, which Pitt is not even a part of. Right. And I admire the ambition of that, and I admire why they're doing that. That puts us with the boots on the ground, these soldiers who are facing what McMahon is trying to corral from the base. And we get a sense of how chaotic and how impossible that task Mm -hmm. is. So motivation, completely get and respect, but the execution just falls flat because... We're left. How does McMahon fit in this? Mm -hmm. This is his. This is all through his lens. And to add on this, we haven't even mentioned that there's voiceover narration who we don't get there for the first two thirds of the film (laughs) who it's coming from. Very snarky, very slick, blithely going over these Mm -hmm. complex geopolitical situations as if it has all the answers. If that's part of the lesson telling that you were talking about, I I would say that doesn't work very well at all because it simplifies things to score easy points. But it's so odd that the movie then later pauses to show us with that battle scene how complicated it is I so know. Wh- where where do you want to go here what well, sort of portrait do you want to paint is the problem with the film yeah and that battle scene
1: you're talking about it features lakeith stanfield i talked about him with get out he's in atlanta he's a great actor he's someone i want to watch in just about anything You talk about unfair he's forced to do all this heavy emotional lifting in a sequence that because of all the things we've been talking about by the time it gets to it it really doesn't register and it feels unfair to him and it feels unfair to us to have to watch it that the movie is now all of a sudden being really serious Mm -hmm. and making us think about the horrors of war. It actually shoots the end of that sequence, too, with Stanfield's character, just like it shoots in slow motion with no sound. A sequence earlier where all the men in McMahon's company are on a party bus heading from Paris to Berlin, right? And it cuts out, and it's just this chaos, this revelry. When we see that mimic later in this really heavy scene that just makes it fall even more flat. I honestly knew I was going to be at odds with this movie from the first 15 minutes because of that voiceover. Somehow, I was able to place that it was Scoot McNary. I don't know know why, because it's not like he has that distinctive a voice, and I didn't know he was in the film, but somehow I recognized it. He shows up later, an interesting choice to give a voiceover to someone who shows up halfway through the movie and disappears three-quarters of the way through the movie, but There's something about that style where it's this extended prologue almost. It plays out for 15 or 20 minutes with this voiceover introducing us to each member of the entourage and setting the scene, some of the geopolitics that go into it. I think it would probably work in a long-form essay. It would probably work in book form where it's like each chapter was, let's meet Pete. Let's meet this guy, the PR guy, whoever it is. But in movie form, I just kept asking myself, when is the movie actually gonna start? Mm. That's what it feels like to me it when does you get a that, long time. that prolonged VO and all of those introductions. And by the end of the movie, and this isn't a spoiler, we get this same character who we've barely met in this film and really have no connection to whatsoever. By the time he's more or less lecturing us on the lessons we should take away from Stanley McChrystal slash Glenn McMahon's downfall, it felt totally unearned. I started questioning what right do you have to be the one mocking us or telling us what we should be thinking I don't, I don't know you I have no investment in you as a character or your perspective whatsoever
2: in the good old days wars were fought against conventional armies from nation states guys in uniforms like Nazis and stuff when however you've just gone and invaded a place that you probably shouldn't have you end up fighting against just regular people in regular
3: people clothes these guys are what are called insurgents Basically, they're just guys who picked up weapons, because so would you if someone invaded your country. Funnily enough, insurgencies are next to impossible to defeat. Something similar happens with Tilda totally. Swinton's one scene. Yeah. I think it is. As a German politician or diplomat, this is where McMahon is presenting his strategy in Berlin, I believe. Mm-hmm. And man, she stands up and basically just spouts an op-ed. Yeah. She lays and out the central dilemma of the movie. It's really, really brutal. And it, you know, if anyone can save any material, it's Tilda Swinton. <laughs> right. And the fact that she doesn't hear, I think, suggests what some of the problems, at least at the script stage are Mm -hmm. even though i think i agree with you on all of the supporting
1: performances though i was on board with kingsley from the very beginning in fact i i think his introduction was kind of a funny visual gag there are ultimately too many characters as i said too many introductions and too many characters i think who are defined by one sort of behavior so we have even though we get some nice moments i like anthony michael hall he's the angry, shouty guy. And the guy Pete's the wild, drunk guy. And Topher Grace, though fine, is the smuggy smug guy, which he's really good at playing. And we meet Ayman Hamdouchi is his name. He shows up as Badi Bassam. He's an Afghan. He's a scholar. I think he's a soldier, too. And he shows up because McMahon has decided that since this is a joint effort and it's all about the Afghan people, we need to have one of them on our side and get their perspective. Great in theory, but then He completely disappears. He shows up at a couple times in the film, but otherwise brings nothing to the table, which there's a part of you that wants to say, well, that's part of the commentary. That's the joke. Perhaps. But... I still felt like for that character to be introduced and to not have any kind of inner life, it's fine if he contributed nothing, if they ignored him, if he didn't get anything to do. But we have no
3: sense of who he is as an individual, and the movie could have brought that. Well, they use him as that. I mean, that is the joke for his character, and they use that in one good scene where he's brought in with the diplomats, and he's kind of like patting him on the head like he's a pet, right? Right. But then it's like they got that out of him, and then they just have him in the background for the rest of the scenes. His entourage, that's the perfect word for them, should have been cut in half right uh, you you really don't learn much more after the introductions from maybe two or three of them it's the ones that I mentioned mm-hmm. because they managed to squeeze something out of their scenes who make an impression but yeah it, it is probably overpopulated in characters and at the risk of being redundant I just really want to stress Meg Tilly here
1: because all of those one note kind of performances and all of those characters really highlight the ability of an actor or actress to show up on screen And level you with some genuine acting and doing something with what had to be so little on the page. And it's Meg Tilly. Again, I, like you, don't remember the last time I saw her even in a movie. And it took me a few minutes to accept that that was her on screen. She plays the wife of General McMahon. And I do love the way Michaud introduces her here in a hotel room, he's forgotten she's even there. Mm-hmm. You know when he goes down to see her, they can't have seen each other very often over the past year or so. You have no sense until later in a great dinner scene on their anniversary That's in Paris. The scene, yeah. Right. Just how long they've been apart and how little they've seen each other over the past eight years of his career. But there's a distance between them physically where he seems almost afraid of walking over to the window to be next to her. And this is the wife he barely sees. That's kind of all we need to know about that dynamic. And then later when they're at dinner, they're much closer. It's supposed to be this intimate affair, but we recognize how much of a distance there is between them emotionally. He does a great job of drawing that out. And again, it's really kind of a marvel that in basically two scenes, she has a couple other appearances, but in basically two scenes, Meg Tilly gives one of the best performances I've seen this year.
2: You know, the other day I was uh, calculating the, the um, I was working out that we've spent less than 30 days a year together for the last eight years. <laughs> and I was just thinking that it's really interesting the way things happen.
4: Well, if we hadn't gone to war, if, if September 11th hadn't happened, mm. if America hadn't been attacked and we hadn't gone to war, I'd probably be barbecuing something in our backyard right now. Mm. But 9-11 did happen, didn't it? Huh?
2: yes. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. And I am so- I'm sorry. I didn't say that to make you feel bad. What are you thinking about? No, it? I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not thinking about it. I promise. Uh,
4: yes, you are. You're calculating days. You just told me one day you sat yourself down with a calendar and you, you calculated days.
2: Yes, I know. I know. But I just did that because... I did it because I was proud of you, honey. <laughs> proud of me, too. You know?
3: What happens, though, when you have a performance that good and that rooted in reality is it casts everything else that's going on in relief. Exactly. Right. And it, and it almost it almost undermines what you see, because even Pitt there, you you feel sorry for him because you sense he doesn't know which way to go. Like, am I do I do the voice <laughs> now? Do I start squinting? Yeah. Or, or is this where I'm supposed to be a real guy? Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of left adrift by the entire film. War Machine
1: is currently streaming exclusively on Netflix. It is the second Netflix premiere we reviewed here in the first four to five months of the year, and I'm sure it's purely coincidental that, like the Discovery, it's a bit of a disappointment. There's a lot going for it. There's a lot going for both films. It's very ambitious. Yeah, both are ambitious, but let us down, I suppose. If you've seen War Machine or you do see it and agree or disagree with our
3: takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to take one more trip back to 1984 next with the results of our film spotting deathmatch. This is Spinal Tap versus The Terminator. Then the new film spotting poll looks ahead to gauge your excitement for three upcoming superhero movies. Stay with us.
4: most unwelcome visitor and we do not propose to entertain you
2: you'll find them easily amused
4: you won't be here long enough for that
1: queen of can nicole kidman with colin farrell in the trailer for Sophia coppola's the beguiled one of our most anticipated films of the year certainly high on your list josh and i suppose it's even a little more anticipated now after its big win at the can Film Festival, Coppola won Best Director. She's only the second woman to win Best Director at Cannes, the
3: first since 1961. I don't know why that shocks me. I, you know that that's been an issue for a lot of sure. film awards groups, but I would have thought Cannes of all places yes. would have been ahead of the game there. I agree with you. I was shocked Claire that Denis, it had been that long. I mean, all of these international filmmakers they've been honoring, but hey, good to see this year.
1: Absolutely, Kidman, the recipient of a special prize. She appeared in four films playing the festival, including The Beguiled. She was also in Killing of a Sacred Deer from Yorgos Lanthimos, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, John Cameron Mitchell, and Season Two of Jane Campion's Top of the Lake. China Girl. We may have more on some. of of those titles in just a moment the beguiled opens in limited release later this month josh you i don't know if you're prepared to talk about it but i know you wrote about it a little bit you did watch contrary to my system you watch
3: the original the beguiled don siegel yeah Don Clint siegel, eastwood, eastwood produced 1971 general thoughts at some point i'll just say this well first of all it's the exact film Sofia Coppola should be remaking. It's it's almost as if The Begout was made so that Sofia Coppola could remake it. Whether or not it is it a little macho? Is that or not what you're it suggesting? Turns out, no, it, it's like, um, I mean, in certain points it is. It's got Clint Eastwood in it, right? But it's also ethereal, really revolves around this group of young women. And it reminded me a lot of Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, really? but with Eastwood in the middle of it, huh. it's- A curiosity. It's one of those movies where you say, like, could only have been made in the 70s, right? Because you can't imagine out of nowhere it being made today. It's being remade, of course, but it's a really strange film. I encourage you to... Do your process. I will. See The New Beguiled first, but then it's worth catching up with that original for I definitely sure. will do that. Other award winners we would like to
1: highlight, The Palm Door. The grand prize went to the square. This is, according to my notes, an art world satire. It's directed by Sweden's Ruben Oslin. He gave us Force Majeure, which
3: was one of our favorite films of a couple of years ago. It was, and one that I think we both caught maybe just at the very end of the year. And probably if we'd seen it earlier, might have cracked one or both of our lists, top yeah. ten. Yeah, and if did it, it had make yours? been seen
1: even earlier, it would have probably been a Golden Brick finalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was too late. Really year. I can't remember if it cracked my top ten or not. I feel like it did. Scott Tobias's list, maybe, on our roundtable, but a very good film, and I am obviously excited to see The Square as well. Beats Per Minute, this is directed by Robin Campillo. It's about French AIDS activists in the 1990s. That won the second prize. The jury prize, the third prize, went to Loveless, a family drama from Russia, and Best actress went to Diane Kruger for In the Fade. I, of course, think of Kruger probably most notably as Bridget von Hammersmark in Inglorious Bastards. Here she plays a woman taking revenge for her family in the aftermath of an explosion. And best actor apparently quite a surprise to him anyway, went to Joaquin Phoenix in the latest from director Lynne Ramsey. I'm afraid, Josh, we're going to have to talk about Kevin again, at least for a few minutes, as she has a new one called You Were Never Really Here. Our buddy David Ehrlich on Twitter said, Joaquin Phoenix is, quote, unreal, and you were never really here. Great choice for best actor. But then he adds hashtag, but Adam Sandler was robbed, and he is apparently not Joking. Sandy Wexler? The the one
3: I have to yes, see?
1: For Sandy Wexler. <laughs> Is that was that what happened? Wow. <laughs> Best screenplay was a tie. It went to Ramsey and to our guy, Yorgos Lanthimos of Dog Tooth and the Lobster Fame, his latest, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Can't wait to see all of those movies, even the latest from the director of We Need to Talk About Kevin, a movie we didn't like all that
3: much. Are you ready for another Lanthimos? I mean, I, I love yeah, his stuff. I think it, I am. His last one made my top ten list, but They're such wrenching experiences. I feel like I need a little more time. Yeah, it's a good point. But hey, we'll see it. We had a lot of time between Alps
1: and between The Lobster. We were waiting and waiting. It made like three straight lists of our most anticipated movies of the year. And now we're getting another pretty quickly. We'll see when it does open here in the United States. A couple other films. We wanted to highlight that played in and out of competition at Can the Florida Project, which is the latest from Sean Baker. He is the director of the 2015 film-spotting Golden Brick winner Tangerine. Of course, we can't wait to see whatever he has next. And in the IndieWire poll of 30 critics covering this year's festival, it was voted the best film. Saw various tweets that came out the night that movie premiered and a lot of people were rapturous and that's great i mean that just fills me with joy partly as a movie lover that i want to see what everyone is gushing about but even more as someone who was given a film spot in golden brick award which is largely an award not only for what they achieved in their debut film or one of their early films but it's based a lot on promise too we're saying hey world you need to look out for this filmmaker Sean Baker sounds like he has a really promising one coming up soon.
3: Absolutely. You also mentioned Top of the Lake, Adam, China Girl. This is the follow-up to Jane Campion's 2013 miniseries, which starred Elizabeth Moss. Moss is back for this one which is great news. She was absolutely wonderful. In the first Top of the Lake, Nicole Kidman, as you mentioned, is joining her. I think this is going to be available on Sundance TV in September. We also have a comment to share from David Ehrlich on this. It may be a TV show, but Jane Campion's Top of the Lake China Girl is also the best thing it can. This show is truly a stone-cold masterpiece, one of the most ingeniously plotted and emotionally powerful detective stories I've ever seen. You have until September to watch the original Top of the Lake. I haven't seen it. And then David uses some language. Which we can pass along. along. We he, can say he F this up okay, here fine. on this family yeah.
1: show. <laughs> Finally, we would be remiss if as we're taping this on Agnes Varda's birthday, we didn't point out that she had a film Playing at Cannes, the filmmaker whose movies we covered in our most recent marathon here on the show. The 89-year-old Varda, she has a new documentary collaboration with French filmmaker J.R. Its US release date is unknown. It's called Faces Places, which seems appropriate considering how much time we spent during our marathon talking about the way she depicts both faces and places. I can't wait to see it. And I'm excited that Varda, not surprisingly, at this age, is still very much vital, it seems. That was another one on Twitter. All the people I follow anyway were speaking very glowingly of. That's going to do it for our Can Talk, maybe until we actually get to Can someday. someday it is our plan. Someday, Adam. Someday. someday. We think we can do it. We just have to make it happen. Some other quick notes here. We are going to review Wonder Woman on next week's show. It opens this weekend. And the top five doesn't directly tie in with Wonder Woman, unless some of you had this experience at the theater with it. It could happen. But, Josh, you do the honors, as it was your idea. And it is tying in with your book, Movies Our Prayers, released June 13th.
3: You don't think people are going to have religious experiences at Wonder Woman? I'm saying they might. They might. Who might? We'll to see. predict that. Hey, in the book, I probably stretch some other things a lot further than comparing Wonder no. Woman to a religious experience. Yeah, we were trying to find a way to capture the idea of the book, which is essentially looking at how different films, non-religious films, can function as sorts of prayers. So whether they're prayers of confession, prayers of lament, that's the idea. So we thought that's complicated for a top five list. Something somewhat similar might be to ask, and this is obviously going to be very personal, what were some of the religious experiences you've had at the movies? And we're still trying to define that. But we are defining it fairly secularly, correct?
1: Yes. In terms of the movies, we'll be picking. Perhaps there may be some movies that deal directly with religion. But in terms of the way you laid it out for me, which is more about movies making you contemplate things outside of yourself. Yes. Whatever that means. I see what you're saying. Then those don't have to be specifically about God or
3: about anything True. truly spiritual. True. I think, yeah, we're trying to broaden it out. And this is one I think we're curious to hear from listeners, too, how they define a religious experience yeah. at the movie. So it's going to be really interesting. I'm not even sure where I'm going to head with this mm-hmm. yet. So I'm looking forward to to digging into this one. I am, too, in
1: terms of top fives that I'm a little bit scared of because I don't know exactly where I'm going with it. But also, I'm really excited to see where I come out. This is at the top of the list. I've talked to Sam about it a little bit. I know one movie for sure that's going to make the list if I can articulate it. I have another one that definitely is a film that has heavy religious themes. Okay. But I'm afraid to talk about it because I've talked about it a little bit here on the show already over the past couple of years and more to the point, to really give away how. It's such a religious experience I'd have to talk about the ending of the film okay, well, which I don't really want to do movie. so you can it's get very away with old. It. We'll see. I would not want to spoil it for anyone including the person sitting across from me who ah, I believe as we sit here you still what, have not seen I this know film. What film you're yeah, talking so about. I have two titles in mind. We'll see where we go. The one thing I want to be clear about is what we're not trying to do is talk about this in terms of the movies that changed our lives or right. or what I mean there is the movies that made us want to be critics or filmmakers or turned us into cinephiles. It's not about seeing a movie for the first time that blows you away. That opened and you your think, eyes oh, to there's movies something new. or something, right? Yeah, it's not that. Yep. It's something more personal than that. What that is, is up to us to define. I can't wait to hear some of the picks from listeners and what definitions they come up with. You can email those to us feedback at filmspotting.net in email form or send us an MP3 file, record a voicemail. You can also call our voicemail line 312-264-0744.
3: So speaking of the book, let's give some away. All right. It's Love almost it. out. June 13 is the publication date for Movies Are Prayers. If you want a chance to win a copy, we're going to give out by Random Drawing. I think maybe the best way to do this is to ask folks to just email us at feedback at net. Put Movies our Prayers in the subject line, and we'll give you a little time to do this since some people listen to shows a week or more after they've come out. How about we put the deadline around June 19? And don't worry, Adam, I'll, I'll take care of collating these or, or oh, yeah. find an intern. We'll find an intern maybe. <laughs> to do it but we'll get five copies out to people who are at all interested in checking the book out
1: well i appreciate it but don't you want to make our audience work a little bit maybe they have to submit a religious
3: experience at the movies i would love for them to do that along with the title but let's let's not make them work too hard
1: okay we also want to award you some free movie passes all of our chicago listeners last week i touched on these titles if you go to filmspotting.net slash events that's where we post any big events we have coming up including movie screenings where we're giving away passes the hero coming out with sam elliott the book of henry with naomi watts my cousin rachel with rachel vice and it comes at night one of the movies we cannot wait to see that's directed by trey edward schultz whose last film was Cresha, came up a ton last year not only as a golden brick finalist but on our end of the year wrap party where we highlighted a lot of the best scenes and moments of the year when that opens we have passes during its run so you can see it when it's actually in theaters the other titles we have passes for early free screenings just go again to filmspotting.net slash events to get all of the details there we also have a link on our new website josh where listeners can help us by giving us some feedback on the show, filmspotting.net slash survey. And in the coming weeks, we may post one or two more questions that we're curious about and want your feedback on. Right now, we just posed to you two questions. Josh, we have over 800 responses. Nice. In about two weeks. We feel like that's a pretty decent sample size to draw some conclusions. And mostly out of curiosity, we asked you to rank your favorite film spotting segments, the main segments of the show. What keeps you coming back? Is it the marathons, the interviews that do happen here on occasion, the reviews, specifically new movie releases, which we normally do, or the top five lists, which obviously has been an anchor of the show since its beginning. And maybe not surprisingly, Josh, the results came out. Reviews, number one, top five list, two, pretty tight, and then marathons followed by The interviews, and I love seeing that the marathons got as much love as they did there in third place. I also want to point out because it just surprises me, but surprises me in a really good, promising way that since we announced a few weeks ago that our next marathon was going to be Argentinian cinema, Mm -hmm. we've gotten more emails about Argentine cinema with recommendations about directors and filmmakers, some from people who are from Argentina originally from people who live there, some from people who are from the States, but now live in Argentina with recommendations. We've gotten more email about this marathon than any marathon I can think of in recent memory, which again, is kind of a surprise, but a really pleasant one.
3: Yeah, that's great. And we're going to be getting to that probably early fall, right? That's the plan
1: before kind of all the big awards movies come out. We hope to wrap up that marathon. The other question we asked was, do you think film spotting is too long? the average episode of film spotting if you're listening to this on the radio i've noted before you only get an abbreviated version you get less than an hour of the show for some people that might be the right amount the podcast version of course is often much longer 87 percent of the people who filled it out said
3: nope we don't mind it keep talking josh i am now changing my top five military performances to a top 10 why not (laughs) Apparently, 87% of our
1: audience doesn't mind. So, we feel bad for the other 13%. We are going to keep babbling. Thank you again to everybody who shared that feedback. We do consider it. It may alter or may not alter how we look at things as we move forward. But, really, just as we're making decisions about what the next show should look like and we're kind of debating whether a top five would be better or some other type of segment or which movie we should maybe review, it's nice to have a little bit of an educated guess based on some feedback from our listeners. So again, filmspotting.net slash survey.
3: That's where you will find every now and again, new questions posted. Speaking of babbling, one more note here before we move on. The London meetup is set. We've got a date. We've got a time. Monday, June 12th. 8 p.m. I'm going to be over there for a family trip, but have gotten permission to duck away to get together with some film spotting listeners. Nigel Smith of the Tufnell Park Film Club is going to get us a table at the BFI South Bank location. Mm. And this is promising. We've already heard from others on the film spotting forum who have mentioned, well, after that, we've got to go here. And then, no, after that, we've got to go there. So, If I disappear, disappear, my family will be coming to you to try to find out what happened. Yeah,
1: I can dig into the forum and see where you ended up. That sounds like a lot of fun. As someone who did spend four months in London as a student, I am incredibly, incredibly jealous. I hope you guys have a great time. And with that, let's get to the great time that is Film Spotting Polls. I'm
2: a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. You want to wait? There's a bench over there. I'll be back.
1: A couple weeks back, we had a 1984 death match to pose to you. We were anticipating the show last week where we had a mostly civil discussion about the Terminator. I, I would say 13% civil. 13%. That seems accurate. That was our Sacred Cow review of The Terminator. It was a fun listen. At least most people seem to think so. And we encourage you to seek it out if you haven't had a chance to listen already. We get to those results now of the deathmatch. The Terminator faced off against This Is Spinal Tap. And not only did we say at the time that we were voting for Spinal Tap... On our respective lists, you had Spinal Tap at what number, Josh? I want to say three. Does that sound right? three or four. Yeah. And I had it at number one. Yeah. I think it's the best film of 84. So despite my affection for The Terminator, I think it was number 10 for me on my overall list. Spinal Tap, hands down winner. Not so much a hands
3: down winner here, but it did win. With 53% of the vote, The Terminator took 47%. And that's... Seems tight, but actually a fairly wide gap for where things were for much of the race, right? It was going vote by vote they were interchanging that
1: top spot so that's what we want to see with these death matches when they're right around 50 percent and there's a real good contest going but this is spinal tap did eventually pull away matthew fleming wrote in both our classics but terminator was genre defining spinal tap was genre creating whether they were the first ones to the concept or not i can't say but they established the mockumentary form that went
3: on to give us not just other great films but some great tv series as well Also heard from Michael Loker and El Cerrito. Totally depends on the rules. If we're playing time machine rules, meaning the defeated movie never existed and all its progeny are gone forever, too, then we've got to keep Terminator. It's pretty hard to conceive of a media landscape without time-traveling Viennese deathbots or where the phrase I'll be back isn't synonymous with California politics. But... I ran my reel-to-reel back and double-checked the transcripts from your last show, and we're definitely going with bonfire rules, where all copies of The Loser are shredded and torched, but no one messes with history. That's correct. Okay. That is the deathmatch approach, and that's
1: the same rule that applies to film spotting madness. We're not erasing the movie from existence. We all saw it. We're just now deciding that it doesn't get to exist anymore.
3: But he's also pointing out that sequels would still exist then. Yes, absolutely, okay. right. unaffected. Michael continues here with legacy preservation out the window. We can just compare the movies mano a mano. James Cameron gave pop culture a big shot in the arm with his very cool Deathbot flick. But let's be real; it's a sexed up B movie. It's got great overall vision and amazing effects, but it's a little rough. Here we go. Michael Bean and Linda Hamilton aren't exactly Bogart and Bergman here, and the dialogue ain't Tennessee Williams either. Whoa, whoa, Michael, be careful. Those are trigger words. Spinal Tap? It didn't exactly revolutionize cinema, Michael says, but damn is it ever an original well-made movie, and it's so, so funny. The leads are unreal in their command of this stuff. Whip smart, lightning-in-a-bottle improv, hilarious and believable quirks, affectations and mannerisms, straight faces through unexpected scenes that most actors could never get through without losing it. The bigger the cushion, the sweeter the pushing. The looser the waistband, the deeper the quicksand. Spinal Tap wins and takes an encore. Gil closes us out. And before you get upset that losing Terminator might mean
1: losing T2 as well, go ahead and listen to the commentary track included on Spinal Tap's 25th anniversary DVD release. A quasi-sequel in its own right, the commentary track features Nigel, David, and Derek commenting in character as they watch and correct Marty Debergie's outrageously unfair hatchet job of a movie. Believe me, to lose that would be a tragedy. Far greater than the vanishing of any Terminator sequel. I didn't realize that. That's brilliant. Me neither. No, now I can't wait to check that one out. So we may have a little bit more Terminator talk as we have been getting some good feedback rolling in, and that may come up here on an upcoming show. For now, we're going to get to this week's poll question. As we said, Wonder Woman on tap reviews so far. Pretty good. 79 on Metacritic. As we sit here, Michael Phillips wrote for the first time in a long time, I came out of a DC comic book movie feeling ready for a sequel. It feels right at this actual historical moment when men made of something less than steel are bumbling around trying to run things, paging Paradise Island. Michael, never failing to get in a little jab at our current president. If you think about the 2017 superhero movie scorecard, we do have the Lego Batman movie, which we both liked. Liked quite a bit. We have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Mm. which we were both kind of mixed on. And I suppose, even though they don't technically count, you have to look at the cast of the fate of the furious almost as superheroes at this point john wick sort of a superhero definitely action spectacle movies we were a little bit divided on those two neither of them probably we liked as much as the lego batman movie the best of the bunch there fair to say
3: uh logan also there was logan which which i liked more than you but i probably didn't like as much as most people i mean people really went wild for logan but it was interesting our friends at
1: film spotting svu matt and allison yeah they talked about it recently i think allison said it was one of her favorite films of the year so far maybe her number one that sounds right okay so that brings us to this week's poll question there are three by our count remaining superhero movies on the 2017 movie calendar you can only choose one and yes we did almost make this a death match some might argue that it should be a death match I think the results might bear that out but we're going to give you all three options here Spider-Man
3: Homecoming Thor Ragnarok Justice League are you sure that's how you pronounce Thor no no it's not Ragnarok. It could be.
1: Okay. Well, we need to get that well, one that factor, in the film spotting pronunciation guys. That factors guide.
3: heavily into how I vote, Adam. It does, huh? Yes. I'm saying Ragnarok. Okay. In that case, I'm voting Thor Ragnarok. Okay. But I'm also voting because, I mean, I'm obviously not voting Justice League. We don't need to belabor that. No. Spider-Man Homecoming, very excited about, even though I, from the last Spider-Man movies, did not feel the need in my lifetime to ever have another one, but based on what I saw in captain america which was at civil war right Mm -hmm. Captain america civil war i am excited and tom holland in the lost city of z exactly he's good yes so that is promising but the director is john watts and maybe very talented guy i just don't know anything Mm -hmm. of his and it doesn't look like he's done all that much compared to thor ragnarok 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 we'll ask taika waititi It's director. That is very exciting after what we do in the shadows. I mean, it seems like a weird fit. Well, and his last film, which I'm blanking on as we speak, and I'm going to keep talking and it's going to come to you. Hunt for the Wilder, people. You got it. Yeah,
1: which Which was was also very good. But not
3: exactly a Marvel movie either. No, it's not. So... Curiosity is yeah. very high for Thor. And I, I like the Thor films in general. I like the Thor character. Let mm-hmm. me put it that way, how he's been envisioned in in this Marvel Cinematic okay. Universe. So that's where we differ. I was not a fan of the first Thor movie and
1: I didn't even bother to see the second Thor movie. I think it's the only movie in the quote unquote MCU that I haven't seen yet. So I can't say I am a big fan of Thor, even though I like Hemsworth as Thor, the way he plays him. Yeah, It's hard for me someone who grew up watching Spider-Man cartoons every Saturday and who wore the Spider-Man underoos and really wanted to be Spider-Man oh, yeah. to not go with Spider-Man here, especially after my excitement because of Tom Holland and Civil War. But I'm going Thor as well. I nice. am. I just think it's going to be so interesting to see what YTT does with that material and for that reason, I'm voting that way. I think it's going to lose. I think it's going to lose out to Spider-Man here, but I think it could be pretty close. We'll see how Justice League does. If there are any people out there who are extremely excited about Justice League, we'll see if this sways your vote or not. At least according to IMDB, when I Googled it today, just to make sure that it was in fact called Justice League, there wasn't some colon or additional right. title. It listed as, two hours and 50 minutes
3: long oh good gracious okay well if you're voting that way i am genuinely curious to hear why i'd like to hear what has to this point Mm -hmm. made you excited about a movie a justice league movie is it simply the characters is it because you have appreciated the dc films we've seen we'd like to hear that too so they don't have to do anything to get a copy of your book
1: but they have to earn this free vote in our poll
3: prove, prove it, it to us why in the world We're would you anticipate
1: it. justice league you can vote now at filmspotting.net if you leave a comment and we hope you do please let us know where you're listening from okay adam polish your boots
3: tuck in your shirt and try to stand up straight i can't make beds the way they do you're gonna have in trouble. the film spotting top five is next movie military leaders stay with us and that's in order
1: We also wanted to highlight a couple quick donors and a note from a listener this week. Josh, we got a donation from Lorraine in Salford, Greater Manchester. And if I have the location right, I Googled it on Google Maps and she's just three miles or so from the arena where, of course, there was the the tragedy last week. I hope that Lorraine and everyone around her is safe. We also got this note from Jake Scubish in Madison, Wisconsin, and he is a new $5 a month donor to
3: the show. I've been a listener since 2009, but I'm finally donating to the show for the first time. The reason for this delay is simple. I'm 21 years old, and I've never had any money until now. I listened to my first episode on Christmas Day 2009 when I first got an iPod that could play podcasts. In fact, that was my first podcast episode ever. Michael Phillips validated my love for Where the Wild Things Are on that show, and I've been hooked ever since. Whether it was discovering film-spotting gems like Brick, immersing myself in the organizational glory of Letterboxd, or attending live events Like last year's rap party, I have so much to thank you for. Now that I've graduated college and someone decided I'm employable, I figured I'd finally show my gratitude. Thanks and keep up the great work.
1: Well, I'm really glad that he got a job and immediately just started wasting his money by sending it to us. Like you're not going to get any return on it. There's hey, no, there's him, no interest. Just let him spend freely as he wishes. Adam, have you heard of a four hundred one k, Jake? Huh? <laughs> I'm turning into. A father here. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm all of a sudden lecturing Jake. I've got a lot of other tips for you if you want those, Jake. Thank you to Jake. Thank you to Lorraine. Thank you to all of our donors, including, of course, the lifeblood of the show, our monthly donors like Jake. A no-cost way you can help the show, though, not only checking out our sponsors whether it's just going to their websites and seeing if they're offering anything that you're interested in you can also rate or review us at Apple Podcasts every five star rating every review really does help us reach new listeners we want to thank Raul Suave Mononoke Inc and Zelda 802 for taking the time to recently post a review it's actually Raul Suave
4: I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman your senior drill instructor from now on you will speak only when spoken to And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir,
2: Sir, yes, sir.
4: Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, Sir,
2: yes, sir.
4: If you ladies
2: leave my island...
4: That
1: was R. Lee Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Stanley Kubrick's full metal jacket. There was a time in the formation of this top five list, movie military leaders, where Gunnery Sergeant Hartman wasn't eligible. Because we were thinking of officers only. And we can talk a little bit about how we got to that even, because that's not how this list began at all. We were just thinking about screen soldiers. And then it became officers. And then we started debating well, what are the ranks? What's who qualifies as that? an officer? Technically, gunnery sergeant would not be an officer. Where we ended up is movie military leaders. That means he's a sergeant. He is the leader of men. He would be eligible for this list. He is definitely an honorable mention for me. He does not make my top five because I do have a very specific criteria. We might as well get into it here, Josh, as we were both forming our lists. Originally, just thinking of screen soldiers, Sam threw out the idea of trying to make our list more personal by thinking of soldiers, I think he said, that we'd want to go into battle with. Yeah, that's right. for whatever reason, we both on our own without talking about it, chose to completely ignore Sam. And oh. <laughs> we went in a different
3: direction. I, I, I did give your suggestion consideration, Sam.
1: Oh, well, I did too. <laughs> okay. I did. I'll say that to Sam. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I was pulled more to thinking about officers, thinking about leaders. Yeah. I thought about it in terms of military characters i'd want to follow into battle and then as we were talking behind the scenes you threw out that you were focusing on leaders too so we completely separately came to this idea of leaders instead and then it turns out even though as i said we haven't really shared the details of our preparation i think we even landed on kind of a similar approach in terms of isolating what makes these characters such good leaders and it does make sense as we talked about war machine the movie that inspired this top five right. it's all about a general very much about his leadership skills or lack thereof. So with all of that said, I think we're ready to share our list. What else do you have as far as criteria? Anything?
3: No, that speaks to it. I think I did let Pitt's performance and that character guide me for this list. And, you know... The one distinction, maybe from yours, is that these aren't maybe all positive examples okay. of leadership. So for that's me. where we differ. They're they're more just different styles of leadership we've seen on screen. The quality of leadership, and then the most memorable depictions of it that I've seen at the movies. So, as a matter of fact, I'll start my number five with what most people would consider a negative portrait of military leadership, that's Colonel Nathan Jessup, Jack Nicholson from A Few mm-hmm. Good Men. I mean, this is, I could see in your face, this is scenery chewing to the oh, highest yeah, but order. But unlike it's, you, it's, I'm into scenery delicious. chewing. It's just too delicious to resist, right? <laughs> yeah, he's you, great. You cannot, you cannot deny how wonderful this performance is. I mean, Nicholson puts such a stranglehold on this movie that he actually steals it from Tom Cruise. And think about, has Tom Cruise ever not been... Even in his bad films, has he ever not been the dominant force? As a matter of fact, even think about his supporting performances, something like Tropic Thunder or Magnolia, he makes one of the most forceful impressions in those films as well. So this is a guy who does not give room to anybody on screen, Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise. And Nicholson just grabs this movie away from him. And Cruise is huge
1: in this movie. I watched this recently. It was on TNT or TBS or something a few weeks ago. Hadn't seen it in years. Picked it up on the scene where Cruise is losing his mind at Demi Moore as they're preparing for the final the final day of cross-examination,
3: and I just couldn't believe how big Cruz was in he's it. He's not handing it to Nicholson. No way. He no. wants it just as bad. But here's an indication. So five of the eight clips of this movie, if you go to the Movie Clips YouTube channel, for A Few Good Men, they feature Nicholson's Colonel Nathan Jessup, which is pretty remarkable for a supporting character. And, and here's one that I thought would be worth sharing. It's not the one you think.
4: Thanks, Danny. I love Washington. Excuse me. I didn't dismiss you. I beg your pardon, I'm not through with my examination, sit down. Colonel,
3: what's that?
4: I'd appreciate if he would dress me as colonel or sir, I believe I've earned it.
2: Defense counsel will address the witness as colonel or sir. I don't know what the hell kind of unit you're running here. And the witness will address this court as judge or your honor. I'm quite certain I've earned it.
3: Take your seat. So yeah, this is as big as the whole performance, but it also reveals how Jessup's key to his leadership is that he condescends to everyone beneath him, Right, that he has earned this position, right? It's all about his status above the others. It's about what he's earned. And most importantly, it's about the absolute power that that gives him, that he thinks it gives him at least, that it's been granted to him to even break the law because he is who he is. He's at this rank. He's at this status. So, Wanted to start with a military leader who's a villain, an iconic one, Nicholson's Nathan Jessup. Yeah, it's a great pick, an honorable mention for me, and maybe
1: would have been out of sight, out of mind a little bit had I not seen the movie so recently. But it was one of those films where when I knew that it was getting to the big courtroom showdown at the end, I had to keep watching. And I did. I watched (laughs) it through commercials. Who (laughs) waits for commercials anymore? But I did with a few good men.
4: You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth!
1: My number five movie military leader, and again, I'm going with leaders I would want to follow, I would be okay with as my commanding officer, my pick is Major Reisman in The Dirty Dozen. Partly because I just want to say he's Lee effing Marvin, and that's all I really wanted to say. You mentioned the common trait or the single biggest trait with Nathan R. Jessup is that condescension. And I'm wondering if that's going to be a common theme as we get through your pick, something that defines these men as leaders. For me, I thought about what that trait was that makes me want to follow them, that makes me respect them as a leader. And there's a few different things with Lee Marvin as Major Riceman. If you know the Dirty Dozen, you know that it's the first Suicide Squad movie, basically, right? Where these are all men who have committed crimes. They are going to be hanged or they're going to spend the rest of their life in jail and they are given the option to follow major riceman on a suicide mission more or less and they can do that and maybe get a little bit of relief or they can just die like the criminals that they are and the prisoners that they are. One of the things that we see in Reisman, one of his great traits, he knows the right buttons to push as a leader. He knows that none of these soldiers is exactly the same. He recruits them all a little bit differently. He uses slightly different tactics based on who they are as individuals. He stands by his men. They might be degenerate misfits, but they are his degenerate misfits. And what I really like as well is that he plays to the strengths of his men. There is a sequence where they have to finally That they're finally capable to go off and complete this mission after all their training. They have a setback. I'll have more on that in a second. But when they go on this mission, and they do successfully complete it, they use all these approaches that are unique to them as basically criminals where they're stealing things they're pretending to be other people they're breaking all sorts of rules that normal military men should make but as the major he knows the only way they're going to pull off this mission is if they play to their strengths but i think the biggest thing josh is that second point i made about how he stands by his men there's a scene here where riceman disappears i haven't seen the movie in a few years but he goes away and there's another colonel robert ryan is interrogating them and he's tearing them down in front of his men and it's about to get really ugly and riceman shows up and actually takes out a gun and starts shooting it to get ryan his men to back off and then he has his men disarm all of ryan's men
4: riceman that's right you would be good enough to have your men dispose of their weapons sergeant baron sir get some special help and get those weapons
1: Yes, sir. This is obviously something that doesn't go over well with the commanding officers above them, but it proves to his men that he's going to stick by them no matter what they do, even if it means he's damaging his own career in the military. Can't go
3: wrong with Lee Marvin. No. As a matter of fact, he'll be back. Okay. Not in the Dirty Dozen, though. I'll get to him later on my list. At number four, I have Sergeant Major John Rawlins, played by Morgan Freeman, in Glory. Hmm. Now, when we picked our top five Denzel Washington performances with guest W. Kamau Bell on episode 605, I had Denzel, his turn in glory as Private Trip, as my number two. Washington, I think he's the highlight of the movie, the one character everyone remembers and talks about, and rightly so. But not far behind for me is Morgan Freeman as this black soldier who's been promoted to the rank of sergeant major in one of the first African-American regiments to serve in the Union during the Civil War. So this puts Rollins in this really uneasy position. He's elevated above his fellow ex-slaves here, but he's still subordinate to his white superior officers. Mm-hmm. And this tension, it comes out in this one standoff with Denzel's private trip.
4: All right, all right hands off me, gravedick. Oh,
3: Does the whole world got a
2: stomp in your face? Nigga, you better get your hands off me. Ain't no niggas around here, you hear me? Oh, I see. So the white man give you a couple of stripes, next thing you know, you and ordering everybody around, like you the master himself. Yeah. Nigga, you ain't nothing but the white man's dog. What are you? So full of hate, you just want to go out and fight everybody? Because you've been whipped and chased by hounds. Well, that might not be living, but it sure as hell ain't dying. And that is what these white boys have been doing for going on three years now. Dying by the thousands. Dying for you, fool. I know because I dug the graves. And all the time I'm digging, I'm asking myself when. When, old oh Lord, is going to be our time?
3: So you can quibble with Rollins' take on the Civil War here when he talks about the white soldiers are dying for Tripp's freedom. But what I do like about the portrait of leadership that we get is... For Rollins, it's visionary. He's looking ahead, right? He sees this better future and he's determined to drag his men towards it. Even though he knows that the road, it's it's compromised what they're involved in and what they're facing. It's also going to be arduous what they have to go through. But he sees that end game and he's going to do what it takes and he's going to put them in order Mm -hmm. to get them there. Even the guys he might not necessarily like. So, you know. This is Morgan Freeman, too. So you just kind of want to follow some Morgan Freeman on screen. So that makes it easy. But I, I do like this performance enough to put it at number four. Yeah, that's a great choice. I think I enjoy Morgan
1: Freeman's performance more than I ultimately appreciated the movie Glory, a film I just caught up with in the past year. Was it I for think that it was list? for that Probably, Denzel show yeah. that I did finally force myself to watch it. Just one of those films that somehow, despite... All sorts of junior high classes and high school classes yeah. over the years showing this to various students. I missed it. I was never in those classes.
3: I was going to say, I think we're a little old for that, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Was it 89? Uh, I don't it know. Was Something like ish, that. 87. Okay. Yeah,
1: somewhere around the late 80s. And you're right. Maybe we were just a little bit old because my wife, a couple of years younger than me, she saw it there in you history go. class. That brings us to my number four, and it is Alec Guinness, Colonel Nicholson in Bridge on the River Kwai. The characteristic here that really stands out with Nicholson is the fact that he's a leader of integrity and conviction. He is uncompromising, and we see this at the beginning of the film, near the beginning. It's said in early 1943. They are British prisoners in World War II. They arrive at a prison camp in Burma under the control of the Japanese and the commandant who is Colonel Saito says all the prisoners doesn't matter what your rank is you are all going to have to help build this bridge you are all going to have to work and Nicholson says no this is against the Geneva Conventions officers do not have to work and what we come to realize is this is not merely a case of Nicholson being a leader who is maybe a little bit weak in constitution or doesn't appreciate hard work and wants to be excluded from all of it. It's because of the principle. It's the fact that this commandant is violating the Geneva convention. So he refuses to participate. According to those conventions, officers can only do administrative duties and they simply refuse. And he doesn't fold even when that means that he and his other officers are punished Brutally, in this sweltering heat, they are put in an iron box where they are basically left there all day long. And he doesn't bend. He does not break. And we get a scene later where he's with Saito, and Saito tries to compromise. He says, well, it wouldn't apply to you. When I said all officers must work, naturally, I never meant you, the commanding officer. My orders were
2: only intended for officers below. None of my officers will do manual labor. Please. I was about to say, I have been thinking the matter over, and decided to put majors and above on uh, administrative duties, leaving only the junior officers to lend a hand. I'm afraid not. The convention's quite clear on that point.
1: And The Commandant gives in. His men hail him as a hero. They'll do anything he asks of them from that point forward if they wouldn't already because they know that he will always fight for them. He'll fight for what's right. He's not going to back down. And not just that he's fighting for the officers. He is ultimately fighting for them, too, because he is only concerned with what's right now. This uncompromising approach extends to the building of the bridge as well, how he comes to realize that it's not being built correctly, and he's going to be the one to build it correctly, even if it means helping the enemy. There becomes a very fine line here between righteous conviction and madness, as people know. If you've seen the film, I think I'll leave it right there. But Nicholson, I think, is just one of those
3: iconic movie leaders. So Bridge on the River, Kwai, do you know, would there be 70 millimeter prints of that? Because this is Hmm. one of my... Blind spots. Okay. And I'm sort it of It was holding for me out. until about four years ago. I'm holding out in hopes that the Music Box Festival might include it in their 70 millimeter fest, but I don't know that there ever were prints of that. So uh, maybe I'll just have to watch it yeah. at home at some point. All right. My number three is the only non American on my list. It's Major von Rolfenstein, played by Eric von Stroheim in Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion. Now, von Stroheim was a director in his own right, of course, but here he takes a supporting part in Renoir's World War I classic. His character, von Rofenstein, is a German officer and also an aristocrat who treats his French captors as these honored guests rather than war prisoners. So he's running this castle prison and he does it according to French regulations. He even sports this monocle to match one of his prisoners to, to kind of um, be in line with them. I've always found this to be a wonderfully comic performance that highlights the absurdity of war by juxtaposing it with this man who has such carefully cultivated sophistication in the center of all the madness. And his leadership style, you could almost call it more of being a party host. He's there to make sure that you're comfortable, that you're enjoying yourself, even if you're being held against your will. Now, there's a lot more going on in Grand Illusion than the scenes involving von Rofenstein. As a matter of fact, he disappears for a good chunk of the movie. And this is really one of the great films. It's so dense. But I do think von Stroheim's performance, for some reason... It's one of the elements that I always think of first. It's the one thing I associate with this movie very strongly because the mm-hmm. scenes just stand out and they're such a delight. So he deserved a spot on this list for me.
1: Well, I'm glad you pointed out that you haven't seen Bridge on the River Kwai because that will cover for the fact that's a little bit more embarrassing, some might say, than the fact that I still haven't seen Grand Illusion. Oh, you got Yeah, to. Renoir. It's one of my all time top five regrets. Did finally catch up with the rules of the game in the past three or four years, but Grand Illusion remains one I need to see. My number three is a little bit of a cheat, but hear me out, Josh. It's two characters, two sergeants from the Oliver Stone movie Platoon. Sergeant Elias, played by Willem Dafoe, and Sergeant Barnes, played by Tom Berenger. Are they, you going
3: to give the coin argument? No. They're flip sides of the same okay, coin, well, yeah, I you're, I am. so you're making Except a one Except I wasn't going to use the coin metaphor. I don't know if that's allowed. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> I guess the big Lebowski I isn't on this I list. This it. isn't
1: Nam. Actually, this movie is Nam, but whatever. I think I have a soft spot for this movie, as I'm pretty sure it was my first war movie.
3: Mm. I saw this in the theater when that I might, was eleven or right twelve years old. For me as well. Didn't see it in the theater. No, no. Deer Hunter. I saw when I was way too young. That's no right. kidding. Yeah. See, I didn't
1: see Deer Hunter until I was in high school. So I was in junior high. Barely in junior high, actually, still probably in grade school, fifth or sixth grade when I saw Platoon. And these two characters and that dynamic, the flip sides of the coin, if you will, struck me then. And it strikes me now, you can't separate them. I think they do come as a pair. They come to represent this split in Taylor, Charlie Sheen. His character's Mind And more than that, at one point at the end of the film, in his voiceover, he says that they were fighting for possession of my soul and that he felt like a child of those two fathers. I think they also do represent a split in America. Maybe there was a conflict there where they were fighting for possession of our collective souls. But I love what they represent. These diametrically opposed points of view on the war on really everything. Elias is someone who you see and all of his interactions with his men to be someone who would probably prefer to be out there truly trying to win hearts and minds as opposed to killing people. But if he has to kill, he'll do that. Barnes is basically like the Terminator. He is someone who is really good at killing and surviving. It's just what he does. But they're both resilient and they're both tough and they're both competent as soldiers, but as Stone depicts that they can't coexist. And I think there's a little bit of irony in their characters, too, in that you have Barnes calling Elias a crusader and himself a realist. He says, I am reality. There's the way it ought to be, and there's the way it is. But Elias was the one who was practical enough to realize that this war in Vietnam wasn't going to be won, while Barnes is out there every day, kind of like the general in War Machine, thinking, no, it can be won. I can win it. I'm tough enough. I can pull this off. So in terms of their characteristics as leaders, Elias exudes compassion for his men, which I think is crucial. He can be one of the guys, and we see him be one of the guys at various points. His men love him and revere him. And then you have the opposite side of that, where Barnes is the kind of leader you hate. He's as scary as the enemy, but fear and hate can also be a really great motivator.
4: Now I got no fight with any man that does what he's told. And when he don't, machine breaks down and when the machine breaks down we break down and i ain't gonna allow that many not one
3: well a cheat in a list about military procedure seems especially egregious (laughs) i'm (laughs) court-martialed you're gonna (laughs) no i don't have that authority all right, my number two, here he is, General George Patton, played by George C. Scott in Patton. And all right, maybe I can't be too hard on you because I'm also sort of going to use this chance to give a nod to the great General Buck Turgenson from Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> also played by Scott. I thought about okay, just this is a blatant putting blatant them, sheet. putting this is them worse. together. Nope, 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 Yeah, it's worse. I'm going to move on now. I'm going on to just Patton. This is Scott's turn as the real-life World War II leader in the 1970 biopic. It was directed by Franklin Schaffner. Now, every good leader needs a good speech. And Patton had a legendary one that he gave on the eve of the Allied invasion of France. It's recreated in the film. This is the one of him standing before that enormous American flag.
2: You see it. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country.
3: So this is the pick of mine that probably most closely aligns with Brad Pitt's performance in War Machine, where he plays another U.S. general who's supremely confident in American exceptionalism, particularly don't think Pitt is as successful, obviously, as George C. Scott was. Patton also, when you think about it, so he was from an earlier and perhaps simpler era in terms of international conflict. So the confidence that he has here, I think it feels a a bit more well-founded maybe, or at least in our look back on history, it can seem that way. And Scott absolutely has, I think the, the term for the performance here is gruff assurance that sells this. He has the definitive commanding presence that I don't know if it's a question of who you'd want to follow into battle. You just hear that. You hear him and you have to. You just have to do it.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad this list has turned from the top five movie military leaders into the top five movies that will embarrass Adam to admit he's never seen. Patton is still up there and I love war movies generally I would consider myself a war movie guy and for whatever reason I still haven't seen it I'm pretty sure a listener even sent me a dvd in the past couple years well that that really hurts that to remedy that and I've failed to do so even with this list approaching and now everyone can tune out my final two choices (laughs) it's a
3: long one too though so I know but I can't wait to see it yeah, I no, I, th- I think I just don't have time to see I think it. you'll like it. It's Instead, just said I had to watch War Machine. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> OK,
1: my number two is Colonel Dax from Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Kirk Douglas in the role here as Colonel Dax. In terms of what makes him a great leader, he values the lives of his soldiers rather than seeing them as pawns that can be sacrificed. There is a point that comes about. I think three quarters of the way through the film where one of his commanding officers actually says to him one way to maintain discipline is to shoot a man and Dax is not having any of that. He's another man of integrity like Colonel Nicholson and some of the others on our list. He cannot be bought at one point. He's offered a bribe essentially to kind of go away and stop making such a fuss. It would earn him a promotion. He does not care about that promotion. But the other trait that stands out to me here with Colonel Dax is something that goes back to War Machine again, where I think it's in the VO We hear the character say of General McMahon that he wrote in his book on leadership, a good leader and I'm paraphrasing here because I didn't write down the whole quote, but I think he says, a good leader always follows a set of rules. A great leader knows when to break them. And if that's true, then Colonel Dax is truly a great leader because there is a point in Paths of Glory where There's a group of men who know that they are on a suicide mission. They are pinned down. Too many of their men are dying and they refuse to fight. And when they do, one of the generals orders the artillery to open fire on their fellow French soldiers. And the captain in charge there refuses to do so. And this is kind of buried and... What ends up happening is there's a court-martial against three men who represent those hundred men who wouldn't fight, and Colonel Dax is the one who stands up for them and says, this entire court is a joke. You're making the wrong decision. He really holds them morally responsible for their acts and the fact that they want to execute these three men. So his willingness to be insubordinate when he recognizes that a horrible Mistake is being made and he's not going to be party to it is something that makes him such a remarkable character and a great leader.
2: Gentlemen of the court, there are times when I'm ashamed to be a member of the human race and this is one such occasion. It's impossible for me
4: to summarize the case for the defense since the court never allowed me a reasonable opportunity to present my case. Are you protesting the authenticity of this court? Yes, sir. I protest against being prevented from introducing evidence that I consider vital to the defense. The prosecution presented no witnesses. There has never been a written indictment of charges made against defendants. And lastly, I protest against the fact that no stenographic records
2: of this trial have been kept.
3: Yeah, it's a case of a leader recognizing when he has to go against those who are leading him, right? And, and that's yep. what a lot of that story is about. Definitely an honorable mention for me, Kirk Douglas in Paths of Glory. All right, down to number one. And here is where Lee Marvin is coming back for me. It's in the role of the sergeant in the Big Red One. This was the career capping personal mm. epic from hard-boiled director Samuel Fuller. He was drawing from his own experiences in the 1st Infantry Division, which was known as the big red one. So Marvin here, he plays a World War I veteran and the movie actually begins there. But by the time the story proper picks up, he's remained in the military and now he leads a band of soldiers in World War II. And the movie follows them from the shores of North Africa to the beaches at Normandy and then to the Falkenau death camp in Czechoslovakia. Marvin here is sort of a reluctant leader. He's, he's at least unsure of the morality of some of his own actions to say nothing of the war itself, but he carries on. He stays at the task. He doesn't want to put his own life in anyone else's hands. That's part of it. You get a sense. But he also feels this great responsibility for the men who are under his command. So in a sense, you get an idea that this is just a guy who's trying to survive while doing right by his country. And his men. So Marvin has his trademark stoicism here, that uh, really makes this guy someone who's defiantly unassuming and incredibly inspiring. So he, there's something about not trying to earn that respect, right? That that makes you want to give it to him so much. And I think this is one quality of leadership that is is kind of interesting to me and it applies to other areas than just military is sometimes the best leader is the one who doesn't want to necessarily be the leader, right? You can be a little bit suspicious of that person who – wants to be in charge so badly and lee marvin here as the sergeant um he's he's sort of the opposite of that yeah i completely forgot about the big red one but i love that performance and i like the movie quite a bit it was
1: actually an early marathon movie here on the show sam and i talking about overlooked tours nice. considering samuel fuller one of them my number one is brigadier general frank savage played by Gregory Peck in the movie 12 O'Clock High, an Air Force film from 1949. He takes over for a colonel who, as Frank Savage sees it, has become a little bit too close to his men, and he doesn't want to send them out on missions, and that's probably a good thing because a lot of them are dying. Morale is really low. They're what a lot of them call, and at one point Savage refers to them as, a hard luck Group. They are just in a really bad way. And he basically has the job of coming in and making them a fit fighting unit again, which is an incredibly tough job. There are tons of different leadership traits we could talk about with him, and I'll get into some of them here in a moment. But the big one for me when I think about 12 o'clock high, what really stands out is the way he holds his men accountable. There are consequences when you fail or when you don't give a full effort, he is not going to let anybody slide, which is the first thing you have to do in order to get everyone back on the right path towards success. He starts out as one of those leaders kind of like Barnes, who the men really hate because he's incredibly hard on them. He forces them to practice a lot, to do a bunch of maneuvers and kind of fundamental things because he recognizes that they need that. They have to completely regain their confidence. But that accountability and that desire to to instill it really comes through in a scene where he's pretty early in his tenure with this squadron and there's a soldier who is known as the air exec he's kind of in a leadership role and he calls him in and peck sitting there with the officer standing before him not only does he not salute him he doesn't even look at him for a full minute and he talks about how he's the son and grandson of officers, a West Point grad, nine years of service. He's someone who could have really helped the former colonel and instead, because of his weakness as a man and as a soldier, he's ultimately one of the major reasons that led to that colonel having to be replaced.
2: It would be the easiest course for me to transfer you out. To saddle some unsuspecting guy with a deadbeat. Maybe you think that's what you're going to get out of this, a free ride in some combat unit. But I'm not going to pass the buck. I'm going to keep you right here. I hate a man like you so much that I'm going to get your head down in the mud and trample it. I'm going to make you wish you'd never been born. If that's all, sir. I'm just getting started. You're going to stay right here and get a belly full of flying. You're going to make every mission. You're not air exec anymore. You're just an airplane commander. And I want you to paint this name on the nose of your ship. Leper colony. Because in it, you're going to get every dead beat in the outfit. Every man with a penchant for head colds. If there's a bombardier who can't hit his plate with his fork, you get him. If there's a navigator who can't find the men's room, you get him. Because you rate him.
1: You perform badly, you're going to get bad missions. You're going to get bad men. You perform well, you're going to get better men. You're going to get better missions. And these are the first steps to this squadron completely reinventing itself, which, of course, they ultimately do. Now, I was not surprised at all in doing a little bit of Googling about this movie today to find the first link that came up to be a link to a website I wasn't familiar with before this called movieleadership.com. And it asks, is 12 O'Clock High the definitive movie about leadership? A lot of people would say it is. I would say it is, based on the movies that I've seen that really deal with the topic. And they go through eight different traits that the General Frank Savage exhibits and his men ultimately benefit from i won't list all of them here i will link to those in the show notes but the very first one is restore accountability and standards and if you trust wikipedia it says that at one time it may not be anymore this movie was required viewing at all of the u.s service academies and the air force officer training school the coast guard officer candidate school you name it this was a movie that had to be seen i had no idea about its legacy or the way it's viewed as a textbook almost for good leadership. I just knew that my dad loved this movie. I think it's because that Gregory Peck character is the kind of leader, the kind of man my dad and probably a lot of men from his generation wanted to be on some level. But he's maybe the kind of man who really only exists in the movies, unfortunately. If all of that is not enough to convince you to watch 12 O'Clock High, it was one of the handful of movies Ryan Johnson made the cast of The Last Jedi watch. It was such a big influence on the upcoming Star Wars Episode Eight. Now, whether that's because of some of the characters or its notions of leadership or anything else, or it's really about the way the action scenes are shot, that remains to be seen. One final note, it was funny looking that up today to verify it because I remember Ryan Johnson talking about it somewhere. Turns out all the articles mention where he talked about it, which was Episode 500 of Film Spotting. I think we were the first people to have an interview with him post the announcement that That he was making that film. Yeah, I think that was the timing. Yeah, so I asked him, or you asked him at some point in the interview, what were his influences? Did they watch any films during the making? Twelve O'clock High came up there, so good preparation, perhaps for the Last Jedi. Yeah, there you go, deep cut. very nice those are our top five movie military leaders we want to know your picks before that though we do have some honorable mentions josh
3: yes we do so you mentioned a couple of mine arlie ermy kirk douglas willem Dafoe in platoon i went that direction i also thought about jeremy renner more contemporary here in the hurt locker the sheer bravery of that leadership style and then dana andrews and frederick march i both considered from the best years of our lives and how about Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, Captain America himself, Why not? you know, I thought
1: about it. So the ones that have already been mentioned, Nathan R. Jessup, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, Buck Turgidson, though not a leader I would want to follow into battle. Maybe none of those three are ones I'd want to follow into battle. I would follow Captain Jack Aubrey from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Russell Crowe, and maybe General Clive Wynn Candy from my beloved The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from The Archers. Finally, I'd be remiss if I somehow didn't throw in a film that I used to mention Every other episode on film spotting. Hey, Brett Merriman was wondering if he could go for the turkey, where he would get mentioned on three straight episodes of the show.
3: I did. I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing. Well, it's here a you thing go. now.
1: He's done it because whenever I say Henry V, he he cringes and then screams <laughs> at his iPhone because I'm mentioning it yet again. But King Henry V, in fact, such a good military leader that when his men are, they're almost done. They're almost defeated but they have to win this battle, his rhetoric is so fiery, he scares the opposing commanding officer into saying, yep, you know what, we, we give up, we surrender, you can, you can have our little village. Good speech, huh? Yeah, I mean, it must have been a good speech. I guess it helps when Shakespeare's writing it for you. We do have one final pick here. We wanted to get to a listener voicemail with his favorite movie military leader.
0: Hi, Josh and Adam, this is Jeff Milo calling from Ferndale, Michigan uh, in for your military performances. Hope oh, I'm not too late to get in here. There's a lot of great performances, some more towering than others. There's Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now. There's R. Lee Ermey in Full Metal Jacket, Kirk Douglas in Passive Glory, and Christopher Walken in Deer Hunter. But I'm leaving this voicemail with no naivety that my pick might break into the top five, though I'm hoping it might be an honorable mention. The thing about Donald Sutherland is that you instantly think mash, but I instantly think, you know, about something righteous and hopeful and full of positive waves, baby. That oddball, his eccentric tank-driving character from Kelly's Heroes. I think second only to... Twin Peaks Special Agent Dale Cooper, Oddball is the uh, one other character that I just wish I could be and model my own life after. With his sublimely strange outlook and approach to life, his cheery and quirky disposition, the sort of compactly groovy philosophy that he carries himself with, he steals every scene he's in and uh, he basically transports more of a late 60s Summer of Love bohemian vibe into a 1944 setting. Uh, That grin is infectious, the smiling, pleased with himself eye rolls make you laugh every time, and that strange affectation to his voice. I don't know. He's not a hero, per se, but for me, he's an icon.
2: Hi, man. What are you doing? I'm drinking wine and eating cheese and catching some rays, you know. What's happening? Well, the tank's broken and they're trying to fix it, then why the hell aren't you up there helping them? Oh, man. I only ride them. I don't know what makes them work. Huh?
1: Good stuff there from Donald Sutherland and from Jeff Milo. So Kelly's Hero is a movie now. Josh, we are both feeling very ashamed that we haven't seen. I'm yeah. incredibly eager to see it. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. Jeff's comments. And it should be noted that Donald Sutherland also appears as a bit of an oddball character in my number five movie, The Dirty Dozen. He is one of said Dirty Dozen, but... I also have to point out, Josh, that the last thing I did before coming in to record this show, after coming up with my entire list, was go back to the Film Spotting Archive to see if I'd ever talked about my number one 12 o'clock high before. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's come up in passing, but it hasn't made a top five list. While I was there, though, guess what I see? I see that on episode 258, back in 2009, Mm -hmm. Maddie and I shared our top five screen leaders oh no was it all military <laughs> i had two military okay major Riceman from the dirty dozen at number four and colonel dax from paths of glory oh, at number one boy so my list is a little bit redundant and i apologize for that maddie at number five had private kelly from kelly's heroes there you go so jeff will appreciate that but this only goes to show that you should either always check the film spotting archive before coming in to record or never check the film spotting archive. (laughs)
3: Ignorance just would have been bliss. You guys had no idea at that point that you were going to need to get really granular with these lists. (laughs) We're going to have our corporate leaders in a couple months. And then, you know,
1: by the time we get to episode 1172, who knows what variation we'll come up with. That is our complete list for now of our favorite movie military leaders. We want to know
3: your picks. Please send those or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. If you do want to dig into those archives, you will find 12 years of reviews, you'll find interviews, and of course, all the top fives that we've done. While you're there, why don't you vote in the current film spotting poll? Which of 2017's three remaining superhero movies are you most looking forward to? Also, if you haven't already, check out the film spotting family of podcasts The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. Regular rotations in my feed. They should be in yours. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out
1: in limited release, we talked about Can earlier, the winner of last year's Palm Door. A little bit of a surprise, I, Daniel Blake from Ken Loach. Dean is out. This is the directing debut of comedian Dimitri Martin. He plays a freelance illustrator in New York who suffers a quarter-life crisis and leaves his home for the West Coast. It has Martin, Gillian Jacobs, and Kevin Klein. And despite having Kevin Klein and Gillian Jacobs... Who I adore and Dimitri Martin, who I appreciate. I saw Dean Josh and was just a little bit disappointed. It's slight, unfortunately. Sad it's, to hear. It is, and it another is not a movie I can recommend. Brick contender, that yeah. didn't make the cut. No, it just fell by the wayside. We'll find them. We are going to find them. We're going to add more here as the year goes on. I wanted to note that on Amazon Prime, if you are a Prime subscriber. Starting this weekend, here, Long Strange Trip, the new documentary from Amir Barlev about the Grateful Dead, all four hours of it. Yeah, what hour are you at? Is out. I finished it. Whoa, look at you. I watched all four hours. I mean, wow. it took me three sittings. Congratulations. But three I sittings? watched it. That's not bad. It's not bad for four hours. It's really good. And I am not a deadhead, but it's a fun journey through the history of the dead Amir Barlev talented documentary filmmaker I encourage people to see it if you have to spread it out however you do it I do encourage it one quick note on the way here I was listening to Stephen Haydn on his podcast celebration rock he's the great rock critic and rock music writer we had him on our show last year I think last summer when we talked about music rivalries which was the subject of his most recent book he devotes his whole current episode to long strange trip and talking with one of his friends who really is a deadhead he makes the This amazing case for the film and for Jerry Garcia as being almost a Charles Foster Kane, Daniel Plainview type of character who doesn't have the competition in him, perhaps, Hmm. that a Plainview had or that aggressive ambition. But in terms of being this pioneer who set out to define his own view of freedom and whatever it is he wants to do, and then it sort of devoured him, I think that's why Stephen Hayden is Stephen Hayden, And now I can't think about the movie... (laughs) Outside of that framework, but it really is a pretty remarkable film that I recommend you see. Out in wide release, Captain Underpants. I may have to take my kids to this. Oh, I may. That is the demo, isn't it? It is. And Wonder Woman is out next week. We will talk about Wonder Woman and share our top five religious experiences at the movies, which, again, are not necessarily religious in the way you might think of it, but eye opening. Transcendent, transformative Transcendent, that's a good word Experiences at the cinema
3: I'm really eager to see what I come up with here What all of us come up with here For that top five list Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessau And Sam Van Hogren Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen Thanks to Candace Griffiths And the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago More information is available at WBEZ.org for Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose
2: anymore. Goodbye.